Well, if you would open up your Bible this morning to Ezekiel chapter 20. We are continuing a series in Ezekiel this morning. We have been in chapter 20 for some time. And today we are, um, if you'll go to the first part of it there, thank you. We are picking up from verse 23. And so Ezekiel verse 23. Moreover, I swore to them, by the way, this is, this is God speaking through the prophet. I swore to them, his people, in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations, disperse them through the countries. Why? Because they had not obeyed my rules, but had rejected my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths. We talked about that last week. And their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good, rules by which they could not have life. I defiled them through their very gifts and their offering up all their firstborn that I might devastate them. I did it that they might know that I am the Lord. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, in this also your fathers blasphemed me by dealing treacherously with me. For when I had brought them into the land that I swore to give them, then wherever they saw any high hill or leafy tree, there they offered their sacrifices, there they presented the provocation of their offerings. There they sent up their pleasing aromas. There they poured out their drink offerings. I said to them, what is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers? Go whoring after their detestable things. When you present your gifts and offer up your children in fire, you defile yourselves. With all your idols to this day, shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What is in your mind shall never happen. The thought, let us be like the nations, the tribes of the countries and worship wood and stone. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And so we say, thanks be to God. So, Ezekiel, in chapter 20, is once again returning to the announcement of judgment on Israel for their idolatry. Okay? And that's not, a, um, that's not a paraphrase of any point. Idolatry is the thing that keeps coming up again and again and again in Ezekiel's revelation uh, to this people. And so last Sunday, we talked about that earlier part in chapter 20 where God's focus, the, the, the way the idolatry takes shape, if you like, is the profaning of the Sabbath day. And I talked to you about how uh, Sabbath took shape for the people of God in the Old Testament, how it might take shape for us today. There was, there was a bit of might, there was a bit of should, so those two things together. Uh, how it should take shape for us, how that might look in your family. The point being that uh, Sabbath, which means rest or stop or cease, there should be some kind of stopping or ceasing that is contrasted with the world's going and and going and going. 
And a lot of you have talked to me since then about kind of how you've decided to start pursuing that rest, if you like. Uh, striving to, to cease from striving. Um, I have really enjoyed those conversations and would encourage you to, to, to keep thinking about it. And um, I'm, I'm just genuinely excited to see how the Lord is going to bless these practices in our midst, what we're going to learn together. I think one thing we're going to learn is that it's, it's going to be more difficult on some Sundays than others. You're going to have some just absolute train wrecks, by the way. And those don't mean anything except, hey, we got to try again. It didn't work. Let's, uh, let, let's try again or let's modify or try something else. And so that's my encouragement to you not, not, not to be discouraged when things don't go the way that you planned uh, on a Sabbath. And so w- where we arrive this morning is that the Lord tells Israel again about this idolatry, but it, it takes actually a specific shape that has puzzled scholars Um, I can tell you because I read from plenty of them in preparation for this sermon, and there's a whole lot of of we don't know. And and, and even that, there's just a whole lot of uh, we're really not sure about this. This is a very shocking thing to read. This is a very shocking thing to hear God say. Specifically, I'm going to take you to verse 25. By the way, we don't have the scrolling thing today, so when I said open your Bibles, I really meant it. Uh, If you need one of the Bibles in the pew, it's actually we're on page 976. And so what, what God tells them is that he's given them his law, they rejected it, and then we get to verse 25, therefore I also gave them up to statutes that were not good, judgments by which they could not live. Now that is a surprising thing for the Lord God Almighty to say. So what I want to talk to you about a bit this morning, we talked about the Sabbath in specific last week, what I want to talk to you about a bit this morning is the law of God. And by that I mean all of the commands that God has given. Now, when, we, when Christians speak of the law, very often what we mean at least is the Ten Commandments. But often when, when we speak of just the law, we mean more broadly uh, all the laws that God gave, mostly in the Old Testament. But then if you've ever heard of the distinction between law and gospel, what that's about is the commands of God, all of them Old and New Testament as well as, um, sorry, and, and then the gospel is the good news of what God has done about your absolute failure to heed those commands, to, to, to live them out and to practice them. And so Christians have long thought and, and even struggled and wrestled with what to do with the laws of God. Sometimes the struggle being so severe that they simply say, you know what? Let's just throw the whole thing out. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians have thought that way about the law. It's just because Jesus, because grace, all of God's commands, we don't have to talk about them, think about them, hear them, listen to them, practice them anymore. It's just, if we just believe, it's just going to happen. And if that were true, what I would submit to you, if that were true, um, Paul wrote a lot of letters to New Testament churches for nothing, right? Because he's constantly, I mean, a lot of Paul's, if I can put it this way, his sentiment in those New Testament letters is, guys, <laughs> I mean, come on, like we've been over this. And, and, and then Paul proceeds to repeat what they already know. But for one reason or another, for the theological reason of indwelling sin, the reality of indwelling sin that, that keeps sort of cropping back up, as it were. And so we have to, again, hear the thou shalt not, but also 
the, the, the what God has done about it. All right? Now, any conversation about the law, I think, has to begin with some passages in the Psalms. If you want to know what God says about His law and how it is that God's people are to think about it, there are three Psalms I would direct you to. Okay? If you want to know what the law of God is, but more specifically how Christians should think about it, there's this kind of cool thing in the book of Psalms. Psalm 1, a great place to, to, to go to hear about the law. Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Right? So you can keep that in your head. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. It just fits. It works. So Psalm 1. How does Psalm 1 start? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law He meditates day and night. Okay, so this law that God has given is apparently something that we're called not just to obey, but to delight in. Now that's a lot harder. If you've ever had to uh, enforce any kind of rule of any kind with, with children or with adults or with adults who behave like children, you have probably had to have this struggle of like you've seen the distinction between obedience and happy delight in the rule itself. So that's Psalm 1. Let's go to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 that speaks of uh, the glory of God in creation. And then when we get to verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. There's that delight again. All right? So there's something else we learned, that that this law is perfect. It doesn't require modification. That's where the Pharisees went wrong, by the way. God hasn't said enough. We have to get more specific. Psalm 119, then. If you'll go there with me. The longest psalm in the book. My pages are fighting turning this morning. Psalm 119. Verse, oh, let's go with verse 47. Psalm 119 and verse 47. I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. Now, that might sound strange if when you think of law, you think of only something that crushes the heart the law does crush the heart by the way when you realize that you can't keep it but the law itself as paul also says in romans 7 is good so the law is not bad later on in psalm 119 verse 97 to be specific oh how i love your law it is my meditation all the day sounds like he's quoting from psalm 1 so then let's now return to ezekiel 20 you'll see i hope where i'm going with this God speaks of the idolatry and the rebellion of Israel. And then he says, I gave them statutes that were not good. Judgments by which they could not live. Or maybe your translation says, did not have life in them. So what is this text doing? Here's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start with this news, which it might be news to you, it might not. Everybody, not just Christians, but everybody lives according to laws maybe you prefer the word rules fine but everyone lives according 
to laws. To quote the great theologian Bob Dylan, everybody's got to serve somebody. Everybody's serving some kind of law. Let's put it that way. Now, there were different kinds of, uh, there are different kinds of rules, different kinds of laws, right? So let's start with what we've been talking about, the, the laws and rules the Bible gives us, best summarized in the Ten Commandments, okay? To violate these, Christians have a word for this, to violate these is a sin, okay? We believe and confess that go, uh, going on sinning, violating the law of God, ignoring the law of God, will cost you. It will wound your soul. It will wound your neighbor. And, very, uh, and, 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 and for those who continue in sin, apart from repentance, without repentance, it will cost you eternally. So you have what the Bible gives us. You also have what the state gives us, right? The state, uh, the, the, the government under which we live gives us various laws. To violate those, we have a word for that, that's a crime. It might also be a sin. That's perhaps a separate sermon. Not all sins are crimes. Not all crimes are sins. Right? So, for example, if, 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 uh, if by saying that I just kind of threw you a curveball, uh, right? Not all not all sins are crimes. Um, that one's easy. I'm sure you can think of violations of the law of God that are not criminalized in our moment, in our context. Not all crimes are sins, right? So again, this is its own, it deserves its own sermon. I'm sorry to just kind of throw you the, the billboard version. But if the Nazis come knocking on your door asking if you've got any Jews in there, the answer is no. Okay? Not all crimes are sins. Maybe, maybe we should give some more time to that. Perhaps a Wednesday night would be good to unpack that a little more. But for now, just for the sake of time. So you have what the Bible tells us, what the state tells us. Then you have rules, less so laws, but more rules, that are enforced by the culture. To violate these is a social faux pas, and it might cost you your reputation. might cost you a lot more than that, honestly, though. could cost you friendships. could even cost you a job. There are certain kinds of rules that develop in a culture that you have to speak a certain way about certain topics. Like, uh, for instance, like human sexuality, the war going on in Ukraine, COVID-19, a way of talking about human beings, um, uh, challenges, mental handicaps, physical handicaps, political figures like Donald Trump or Joe Biden, topics within psychology like mental health, personality, trauma, relationships. Within our culture, there's a a set of rules, sometimes spoken, sometimes not. And those things have a lot, of, a lot of capital, a lot of strength, and a lot of power to condition your behavior. And if you violate those rules, there will be consequences for you, socially, perhaps even materially, as I said. You then have another category, what I would call what I enforce on myself, sort of self-made rules principles, habits you live by, things like that. These could be rules that grow out of personal experiences, right? You might have some experience that, uh, that, that troubles you or even traumatizes you, and so then, then your rule is, I'm never going near anything like that again. Uh, life choices, emotions, what stories you judge to be the most valuable, right? So, uh, so the ones in, in, that are codified in social rules and personal rules can sometimes be the most difficult to define. I'll give you an example of a social rule that I definitely violated, um, and that is that after a celebration where 
people bring you gifts, you do this thing called writing thank you notes. And there were a lot of thank you notes after our wedding that just didn't go out. And I honestly, I think about it like twice a week and really feel terrible about it. (laughs) And so if you'll forgive me, I'm using the pulpit right now to like publicly apologize for this thing that I, that I did that's my fault. Um, and like, seriously, I mean, isn't that funny? That's the power of social rules. Like, I'm not kidding when I say I think about it and like rage about it internally about twice a week. Uh, what? As a sin against you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Forgive me then. Let's do a little, we'll do some forgiveness right now. <laughs> Oh, oh, you've done it as well. Sorry. Sorry, Diane. <laughs> thought we were, I thought you were confronting me. We could do conflict resolution right now. <laughs> God bless you. I love you, Diane. Thank you. Thank you. You didn't want me to feel like I was alone in it, and I totally misunderstood you. My, my point is everyone lives by laws and rules. Even those who tend to see themselves, even if you see yourself as like opposed to laws and rules, and you exalt human autonomy, you know, trust no authority except for yourself, you do you, whatever makes you happy, right? Those are laws, yeah? Even if you don't call them that. In fact, in my experience, if, if, your, if your highest law is, is human autonomy, you do you, whatever makes you happy, you're going to be real dogmatic and authoritarian about that. Um, sometimes I, you, you won't see any kind of authoritarianism like those who are trying to destroy laws of any kind. So, this, so, so what's going on then? Because what I've tried to show you is an apparent contradiction in the Bible where God says, my law is good. He gives it, and then in the Psalms, you have psalmists going, oh, Lord, you're right about that. Your law is good, and it makes me rejoice. And then we get to Ezekiel uh, twenty twenty five, and God says, not good. What's, what's going on here? One of the, one of the difficulties here is, is an issue of translation. So, This is one place where I think the New King James actually handles this a bit better than the ESV. The ESV in verse 25 says, Therefore I also gave them. New King James, therefore I also gave them up. Which is the better translation. Gave them up to laws that were evil. So why am I talking about the universality of law? I started there. Everybody's got laws and I gave you the different kinds. Because what we encounter in verse 25 Again, one of the most puzzling pieces in prophetic literature. It is interesting to note, I just note in passing, that some of the Greek church fathers took this verse and said, yes, God's laws were bad. Uh, And their understanding, I mean, it is kind of interesting, just on a sort of scholarly academic level, they said what this means is that that, that covenant that God gave at Sinai to Moses, all those rules... Sinai and, and then you know Leviticus and so on were, were actually a punishment. So the argument is the argument goes if you read Exodus and Numbers, but what you discover is that the giving of the law came right after golden calf, right? So so okay now you done messed up Israel now you're going to get it right. So apparently I couldn't trust you kids to behave yourselves. Right? So don't make me come down there. You made me come, you made me, you made me come down, and so you're now in trouble. Here's a bunch of laws. Okay? And, and so, I mean, is that the best way to, to, read the, uh, to understand the law? You can probably just tell by the way I framed it. I would say absolutely not. Um, so I want to show you from the text, though, why I think that's silly. On one level, the contrast should be obvious, right? You've got in wisdom literature and in, in Psalms uh, 119, 119. 
these repeated affirmations that the law is good. God's commands are good. They're the way in which we should delight to walk. Not just obey, but delight. So nobody has to talk you into delighting, right? God's commandments, the way in which we walk, they result in actual, maybe the best word for me to use here is is like health for us. Mental, emotional, yes, even physical, right? I mean, avoiding gluttony, practicing moderation is going to result in better physical health, okay? Right? And so, what does the text teach? Remember, we've covered so, what we've covered so far. In Ezekiel 20, God is explaining why He will not hear the appeals, the prayers of Israel's elders. Uh, verse 3 of chapter 20. Speak to the elders of Israel, say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Have you come to inquire of Me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. The rest of chapter 20 is God explaining why. So to explain it, God Almighty recounts the story of Israel's disobedience across three generations in the Mosaic era, like post-Egypt. We've heard about their idolatry, profaning of the Sabbath, and in our text this morning, the focus is, is the shape that that idolatry took when they entered the Promised Land. We learn in the text that Israel had a tendency to turn into idols that which was, I think, two broad categories, that which was beautiful and that which was magnificent or awe-inspiring. Okay, So where, where do I get that from? Well, if you'll go back to uh, chapter 20. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Sorry, let me just find the spot. I lost my spot. Therefore, verse 27, Therefore, Son of Man, speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, In this too your fathers have blasphemed me by being unfaithful to me. When I brought them into the land, so there it is, promised land, okay, concerning which I had raised my hand in an oath to give them, and they saw all the high hills, okay, really beautiful, splendid, majestic, highly elevated hills, and, and I would also say, if it helps you to think mountains there, think mountains. All the thick trees, there they offered their sacrifices provoked me with their pagan sacrifices, pagan offerings, sent up their sweet aroma, poured out their drink offerings. So tendency to, to idolize that which was magnificent, high hills, right? exalted places. I mean, and if you've, ever, if you've ever gone hiking in a highly elevated place, you know, like the beauty is really stunning. Uh, when, when Marissa and I went to Missouri on our, our trip in February, we made sure to get the top floor on this place where we were at. Why? Because it was just a fantastic view, right? You could see everything. It was really beautiful. Uh, so, so high places, you, you can see maybe that why that's associated with worship. And then this thing about thick trees. Now, man, to, to, to go into trees in the ancient world, it's, it's interesting if you just trace through Genesis uh, what's going on with trees? We start out with the tree of life. And then, um, and then later on, we've got Abraham at, at something called the, I mean, the oaks of Mamre. So he's under an oak tree. Apparently that's important, right? And you've got um, one of the disciples under a tree when Jesus calls him. You have the tree of life coming back at the end in Revelation. Apparently trees are really important. And what we see in history actually is that in pagan societies, people congregating around trees is really not that uncommon. There's this one story, in fact, about this guy. I'm pretty sure I've got my, my 
historical spots right, this guy named St. Boniface, who decided to go on, uh, who decided to be a missionary. So, so he goes out and he encounters this tribe and they worshipped this oak tree that was thought to be the embodiment or the, at least the home of this god called Donner or Donor, depending on how you pronounce it, right? And so what was his missionary method, right? I think in a lot of, a lot of missions, uh, missionary method today, they might talk about, well, you know, you could talk about how Jesus is the true and better tree of life that's better than this old oak tree that you're gathering around and worshiping. Uh, Jesus is the greater, truer fulfillment, the, the, the sort of tree that you're looking for. No, his missionary method was to grab an axe <laughs> and cut the thing down. <laughs> and they didn't kill him, they converted. <laughs> so there's a, there's a good missionary method for you, right? I mean, basically, it's a Elijah, prophets of Baal sort of thing, right? If, if Jesus is God, worship him. If the tree is God, then worship. Now watch this. I'm going to cut it down and let's see if anything happens. And so, so there's something then about these high places, something about the magnificent beauty of trees, something about that which is majestic, beautiful, and big that tempts us to idolatry. But in verse 30, God tells Ezekiel to reveal... To, to remind them of the most horrid and terrifying display of their idolatry. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Are you defiling yourselves in the manner of your fathers, committing harlotry according to their abominations? For when you offer your gifts and make your sons pass through the fire, uh, your translation might have offer your children in the fire. This is... God's reason, the, the, the big sort of bomb drop reason he gives to explain his deafness to their prayers. It is that Israel has begun to imitate the practices of the nations around them. Most horrifically, they have imitated the practice of child sacrifice. And God actually says, I gave them over to it. Now, this, now child sacrifice, let me speak to that just a moment, because it's, it's hard for us to imagine, hard for us to imagine, not really, though. Not when you consider the whole reason you would do something like that is to gain favor with the gods so that the gods would give you the stuff and the life that you wanted. In other words, sacrificing your children to Moloch and the Babylonian gods was done so that they would give you the easy and more profitable life that you desired. That is why comparing child sacrifice with the modern practice of abortion is really not that much of a stretch. Underlying both practices is the idea that the cost of an unpredictable life, and a painful life even, is worth more than the life of my child. The cost of an unpredictable, painful life. And so I need a life I can control. I need a life that goes according to my plans, therefore this child must die. Is that a sin that Jesus forgives? Absolutely. But we see in in Ezekiel the, the horror of it and God addressing it very directly. Now, that, that they would do that with their children, obviously not a rule or a law that God had given them. But when they persisted in it, the Lord Almighty gave to them the worst kind of judgment there is. Namely, He gave them what they really wanted more than Him. 
We tend to think of the worst kinds of judgments as the moments when God acts to bring about some unexpected or undesired set of circumstances. When in actuality, the hardest kind of judgment is when God gives us the thing that we want more than Him. Where we cease to say, Thy will be done, and God says, Okay, have yours then. And it becomes the thing that destroys us. That's why, verses 25 and 26, Therefore I gave them up to statutes that were not good. I'm, I'm asking you to, to interpret that, to understand that, to, 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 if you put the word in brackets, Babylonian statutes, pagan statutes, which were not good. I, I, I gave them up to the laws they actually wanted to follow. Profaned my Sabbaths. Oh, sorry. Uh, judgments by which they could not live. Pronounced them unclean because of their ritual gifts in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire. You see the connection there, right? Not a law that God gave, but he's saying I gave them over. So you see, the text that God is not reversing course and saying now my laws are bad. He is sort of speaking, um, what? Speaking ironically, speaking, uh, but also saying I gave them up. I gave them over to the laws they actually wanted to follow. You see, one of God's greatest mercies to you and me is saying no when we try to pursue the selfish, destructive life that we have designed. And God in His mercy often just puts roadblocks in your way to trip you up. But also, we cannot escape it, can we, that God is the one doing the giving over. We find a similar kind of thing, actually, spoken of in Romans chapter 1. Something that many of you are probably familiar with, but why don't you go there now. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 where we read that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all kinds of ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Changed or exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Birds, four-footed animals, creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up. There's that language. To uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature, rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what do we find there in Romans 1? There is an ignoring, so an ignorance, igno- actively ignoring of what God has made plain. There is also, did you, did you catch it? An absence of thanksgiving. They did not give thanks to God. Right, so, so thanksgiving, that's why I love that song we sang earlier, Jesus, thank you. Just, just a, re, a repeated refrain of, of, of thanksgiving to God for all that he's done for us in Christ. There is an absence of thanksgiving in Romans 1. There is also a progressive or rather digressive downward spiral a, 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 that results in a darkened heart, a darkened ability 
to reason and to see your situation clearly for what it is. It culminates, the, the worst part of it, in the giving over. When God says, if, if that is what you really want and you're working that hard to pursue it and deafening yourself that hard so you can't hear or can't see what I have said and what I have done, well then fine, this is what your will be done looks like. This exchange, this is the exchange of idolatry, right? Pursuit of created things, stuff of this world can be something as simple as overwork or influence, the desire for influence and attention, sex and money. These are all things that we can make idols of, all of it because we believe it will give us the peace that we are actually hungry for. And we find ourselves ever more fearful and anxious than ever. So, probably the question that presses in when we talk about this is, well, then how in the world do you know when that's happened? I mean, I I do think there's a sense in which you can perceive it in the the inability that seizes some some people to, to think beyond the embrace of their sin. You see this often in addiction, for example. And so it is possible to perceive that this is happening. It's just a, a kind of spiritual deafness. Be careful, though, about using your observation of it as an excuse to give up on people. That's a, that's a temptation, that I think, that does face us. So we see, like, oh my gosh, like, so, so far gone, so, uh, so in love with their sin, uh, what I just said earlier, perhaps, so in love with their addiction, so in love with their destructive patterns, like, I don't see this getting any better. It, yep, probably, yep, I mean, you know, Romans 1, given over, I think we're done here. No, you're not. No, you're not. That's, that's, that's not something the Lord's given you to, to, to determine. You might indeed, Christian, observe Romans 1, this seems to be happening. Right? You, 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 might, you might well observe that. Uh, God was not done with His people, Israel. God is not done with any one of us, right? Always remember that, uh, again, there are, no, there are no hard cases that God saves. There are impossible cases of dead men that come to life. Yes. Dead men that come to life. And so, so it's not, this is not always permanent. That's a good thing to also add. If you're taking notes, write that down. This is not always permanent. Sometimes this, this giving over is temporary. And God... Sometimes God, in His, what the Puritans called, severe mercy, allows someone to get a really good look at the horror that their sin brings about. The horror of life apart from Him. He gives them a little diabolical preview of hell. And like the prodigal son, wallowing in the life he thought he wanted, right, comes running back to his father. And so, my hope this morning has been to show you that the law is good, first of all. That's what, that's what we find in Scripture. That the law is good. It's not evil. What is, what is evil or bad or not good or not what you've been called to is thinking that this law saves you. right? Thinking that the keeping of this law is where you find your peace with God. And, and that, this... This internal voice, Luther called it the opinio legis, like this little, this little voice in your head that always tries to make your spiritual life and your walk with God about what you've done to earn it. 
And it's like no matter how, how well schooled you are in the gospel, how long you've spent in Sunday school, how long you've been in church, how much you read your Bible, there is just this little, this little, this little opinio legis, this little opinion of the law that, that, that tries to kind of jump on board, if I can put it this way, the, the, the train cars of your heart and say, you know, you certainly have been doing a lot for God. He probably owes you a degree of comfort, so expect that, Right? You feel really good today. Like, man, the sun is shining. The birds are singing. This is your kind of weather. The horrible heat of Louisiana hasn't hit yet. This is just springtime. God must be pleased with you. Right? And it's, maybe that sounds stupid to you, but that really does, it really does creep into our, into our hearts, into our heads. And that can work for a little while until, <laughs> until summer, until the heat of summer, until disappointment until bereavement, until loss, until cancer shows up. And then you're just laying in the hospital bed and it's not sunny anymore and God must hate me. We are all tempted to invent our own systems of laws. That if we keep them and we keep that behavior in line, that God owes us. This is, if I can put it this way, the problem, though I don't think it's a problem, but the problem of grace, right? Of God's grace, not of the church, but of God's grace to us. That God is gracious to you means not only, it's not that it would be like hard to earn it, that's not even on the table, Christian. It's not even on the table, which means that there is no arrangement you can work out with the Almighty where you've kind of done your part and now, and now it's on Him, right? No, grace means that He can ask anything of you because He's given it all to you, right? Because it is all of grace. Right? So the Christian gladly proclaims that God's laws are actually good. Now, we, I do think in some quarters we've done a poor job of this because what happens is that the, the wider culture, unbelieving world will, will you know, read a little bit of their Bible and say, do you actually like believe that? You really believe that about men and women? You really believe that about husbands and wives? You really believe that about, uh, what, elders in church leadership? You really believe that about marriage and, and, uh, and, and sexual desire? You really believe those things? And the temptation for us is always to go, I bet... I bet I can find a way to talk about that passage that sounds really deep and profound but kind of gets around the awkwardness of what it seems to be saying. Right? I, I think sometimes we've done a, a, a poor job of that. We just need to come back to Psalm 1, to Psalm 19, and to Psalm 119 and say, it's good. Right? Not only do I believe that, I celebrate it. Right? And, and, and so in that sense, like, we actually have joy over what God has said. Not a sort of awkward, hmm, how can I sort of phrase this? But, but no, like, this is, this is good. Like, walk in this way because it's good. So, so the way out then, as we think about these things together, as we think about how our own laws crush us, our own inability to keep them, including God's law, crushes us. One is, is acknowledge your own invented system of laws and rules and, and principles, whatever else, is not saving you. It's not justifying you. In, in other words, even by your own standards, you are failing. And come to Christ, who has given you 
in His words a perfect way to walk in. And then realize you will fail to keep that perfectly. The good news is, though, is that that law doesn't save you. Every word of God's law is good, but only the forgiven person, only the justified person, dare I say it, only the perfect person, which you are by, the, by, by God's goodness to you in justification, can actually see that. So if you look at the front of your bulletin this morning, this, this quote from Derek Thomas, Christians justified by faith alone can, I'm going to put in actually, can actually say, oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your law. Only the justified man can see like that. Because if you are failing, the law doesn't look good ever. It looks like endless reminder of your failure and judgment on you. And so that is why every Sunday we come looking to the cross, to the shed blood of Jesus our Savior, to the forgiveness that He promises, seals, and actually delivers to you, real, present, now. And so, you can confess, I'm justified. God has made me righteous. By faith in His name, we are pulled off the endless treadmill for peace and approval and rest. And we are given not just forgiveness, but the absolutely perfect life of one who perfectly obeyed it all. So that, so that you can actually then look at God's commandments and say, wait a second, this is good and beautiful and blessed. And oh Lord, how I love what you've commanded. Oh Lord, how I love the way you've ordered things. Oh Lord, I'm not earning your favor because I already have it. I'm not earning your smile. I already have it. I'm not earning your forgiveness. I already have all of it. And when I, when I see, when, I, when I, I see through that lens, if I can put it that way, I see your word through that lens, I realize, oh, how, how great my life would be if I walked in all these ways. Because <laughs> they're good. How great my neighborhood would be if we walked in these ways. How delightful our church would be. How amazing our city would be. Oh, Lord, let it be so. Not by our strength, not by our striving, but by the goodness of Jesus who causes our hearts to sing, Lord, you are good and you do good forevermore. So lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, we confess that we need your help to believe these things, so we ask for it now. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see. That we may see in your word, Jesus given to us. That we may see in your sacrament, Jesus given to us. And remind us that we come to this table with empty hands because, because, because of grace, because you have provided all of it. And so, Lord, as we now partake of that feast, as we take and eat, as we take and drink, as we sing once more, and as we depart this place today with your peace on our heads, with your grace to us, grant that we would go out confident that your word, that your law is good, that we would long to walk in your ways for the glory of your holy name. Amen.